0: My name is Kevin Maurice, I'm the youth pastor here at Grace, and I am excited to be here with you today because we are going to study one of the most fascinating, powerful, even mysterious passages in the Bible. It contains so much, it's so rich, and in seven verses it gives us a vision of the entire arc of biblical theology. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, I'm going to meet you there in just a moment. This summer, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, but today we're going to step out of Jesus' sermon to explore a conviction, a core belief for who we are as Christians. Today, we're going to see that God is holy. He is holy. Pastor... Tony Evans writes, Holiness is the centerpiece of God's attributes. Of all the things that God is at the center of his being, he is holy. God's holiness unlocks the door to understanding and making sense out of everything else about him. So, together, let's see God for who he really is this morning. And would you please stand with me as I read from God's Word. This is Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Please be seated. Before Isaiah had this vision, he already believed in God. He he was Jewish, he was a prophet, he knew the scriptures and, and all about God. But God gives him something more. God provides Isaiah an encounter with himself. And this passage, it's so wonderful in its construction. There are these three sections, three movements, and each one declares that God is holy in a different life-changing way because when you encounter the holy God of the universe everything changes your view of of who he is changes your view of who you are changes and your view of of how he saves us changes and that's our outline this morning holiness changes your view of God your view of yourself and then your view of salvation and so, let's start with our view of God. This passage begins with this great detail. I don't want us to miss it. Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. You can read all about King Uzziah in Second Chronicles chapter 26. He's one of the better kings in the history of God's people. He ruled for 52 years, which is a long time, especially for the kings of Israel. And the Bible tells us, as a ruler, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But as every king throughout history has always done, Uzziah died. And so for Israel, the world as they know it is in turmoil. They're living in this... Kind of constant fear of this impending threat from a foreign power. The, the people seem to have turned away from God, so there's fear and anxiety, and the atmosphere is tense. It's like they're collectively holding their breath for what comes next. I think we can relate. And in that cultural moment, God gives Isaiah a vision of himself on the throne. Not on the throne of Israel, not on the throne of a a country or of an empire, but of the universe. God is saying, a king has died, but long live the king. And this is the first way that the holiness of God should shape our worldview as followers of Christ. If we know that God is king, as Christians, are we the kind of people... Are you, am I, the type of person who can navigate this life with a distinct degree of peace and confidence? Because we know that no matter what is happening around us, we have a king who is enthroned in glory above us. Isaiah tells us an earthly king has died, but holy God is alive. He is the living Immortal, personal being. He will never die. Our heroes die, our kings die, our parents die, we die, but not God. Uzziah is dead, but Yahweh is alive. That's how this starts. That's just verse one. And the vision continues from here, and above God, Isaiah sees these creatures. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Seraphim means fiery or or burning ones. They're spiritual beings. And because they have wings and because they're in the presence of God, we tend to think of them as some sort of angels. But we don't know a lot about them. This is the only other place that we see them other than Revelation chapter 4. So it's mysterious. But here's what we know. The Bible tells us that each one has six wings. That's key. In the Bible, the number seven represents completion or or perfection. You could say holiness. The seraphim only have six wings. And what do they do with their wings? They use them to shield themselves because even they can't look at God in his holiness. So their appearance, their makeup, the way they were made makes a statement about what these creatures are compared to their creator. Now, make no mistake, seraphim, other angels, anywhere they show up in Scripture, they're amazing, they're they're awesome, they're fear-provoking beings. Angels are always telling people that they meet, fear not. They're saying, wait, wait, don't be afraid, I, I have something to tell you. One of Jesus' disciples, John, at the end of his life, he has this vision of of heaven, and he sees an angel. And it's so incredible. So he bows down, and he begins to worship it. And, And the angel corrects him. He says, what are you doing? Stand up. Don't worship me. I'm not God. That's God. Human beings, when we're in the presence of something other than us, something that exceeds our limited comprehension, we're drawn to worship that thing. And seraphim, as incredible and otherworldly and awe-inspiring as they are, they're not God. In fact, they're, they're nothing special in and of themselves, but they worship and they serve the one who is. And that's what they're doing here. Verse 3, they call out to one another and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We have this declaration, holy, holy, holy. The word that we translate as holy is the Hebrew word kadosh, kadosh, and its primary meaning is separate or cut apart. So, when the Bible calls God holy, it means that God is transcendentally separate. He's farther above and beyond us than we can possibly fathom. In Scripture, holy can also mean perfect or or absolute or complete, meaning that God is undivided, unbroken, uncontaminated. So, holiness is the wholeness, it's the fullness, the allness of, of God. But because God is transcendent, even with these definitions, even with these descriptions, there's still an indefinable aspect to who God is. And as hard as we try, because we're human and because God is God, we just can't do it. We can't fully define him. We can't fit him into our words. And, and we know this at, at some level. Because have you ever tried to describe something so beautiful, so astonishing that your vocabulary just doesn't do it justice? Do you ever go on vacation somewhere, you you go to a national park, and and you see something in nature that's, it just takes your breath away? Maybe you, you pull out your phone and you took a picture of this extraordinary something, and then you look at it later on or you share it with somebody, and you're like, well, it's not even close. It doesn't match the truth. A few years ago, I took this picture of a sunrise above the cloud line on Mount Rainier in Washington State as the morning illuminated the the ice and and the world below. I will never forget that moment. But I can never reproduce it with words. I, I can't tell you about it without it falling short. Even my photograph, it doesn't, it doesn't capture the feeling or the emotion or the weight of, of being there. It just can't. Pictures are a fraction of a moment at best. Words can never replace what's real. As a songwriter once said, you should have seen that sunrise with your own eyes. And, and that's just a sunrise. We get those every single day. They're a splinter of the natural world that God created. It's not even in the same realm of what it's like trying to describe God himself. The indescribable, the incomparable one will always exceed our ability to describe or define him because the God of the universe is so profoundly unlike us. He's so drastically distinct and different from us, and so He gives us a word when language fails. He's holy. And the seraphim repeat it. Because in Hebrew, magnitude can be expressed by doubling a word. If you say it twice, it intensifies whatever that word is. So, for example, in the book of Genesis, chapter 14, there's a story about a group of people who fall into these deep pits in the ground. And the way that they're described in the Bible are pit pits. It's like the pittest pit you could possibly imagine. Second Kings chapter 25. The Bible's talking about pure gold, and the way that it's there in the Hebrew is gold gold. It's the purest, goldest gold you can own. And we do this too, or at least maybe we used to in in middle school or or high school when we were trying to analyze whether that that guy or that girl was somebody that we like, or maybe it's somebody that we (laughs) like-like. Doubling a word amplifies it, makes it more important. But here, the seraphim don't just call God holy. He's not holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. This is the only word in the entire Bible repeated three times in a row. It's the only thing about God magnified to the third degree. God is loving, absolutely. We're never told that he's love, love, love. God is all-powerful. The Bible never says power, power, power. God is holy, holy, holy. His holiness is the attribute that stands above and even absorbs all the other's Because it is who he is. And when you see God as who he is, your view of him changes. It has to. And so here's a question to apply this conviction When I look at my life, do I see concrete ways that I am different because I know that God is holy? Decisions I make about my time, my money, my energy, my relationships. And even using the word my kind of betrays the truth, doesn't it? Those aren't my things. They're all God's. But see areas in my life, in how I relate to people, how I talk about people, what I watch, what I do online, my parenting, my, my marriage my behavior, can I see places where I'm different and live differently because I know God is holy? And if not, then why not? Because if your life looks pretty much exactly the same as it would if you didn't know God, or if it looks just like it did before you came to know him, it likely means you're living with a view of him as less than he is, as less than holy. And and the God that that you think of, the God that you pray to, is maybe a little bit above you, but he's not so far above and beyond as to be transcendent. So maybe the way you think of him is holy, but you don't see him as holy, holy, holy. Because when you encounter God for who he is, your view of him changes. And then when your vision of God transforms, your view of yourself changes. The way you think of who you are changes because you see God is holy, but I'm not. And you notice Isaiah's first glimpse of God, it doesn't give him comfort It doesn't fill him with with warm, fuzzy feelings. It strikes him with deep fear. He's terrified, and he says, Woe is me, I am lost, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Some translations say, woe is me, I'm ruined, or undone, or even, I love this one, I'm unraveled. Isaiah, he's seeing God, and he's coming apart at the seams because this incredible fear grips him. And that's the correct response to God's holiness. To fear God is a good thing. The book of Proverbs tells us that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But here's what we do. We try to pacify that truth, don't we? We think or we tell ourselves, well, fear doesn't mean fear. It it must mean respect or reverence or honor. And here's the thing. The Hebrew language has those words too. And the word the Bible uses is fear. Actually, often the word is terror. The terror of God's holiness. A helpful way to think of the terror of the holy is to think of the sun. The sun is is unique in our solar system, it's separate, it's distinct, it's even the source of of light and life for our world. There's a reason some ancient people worshiped the sun, It's it's a really good metaphor for God's holiness. But living on planet Earth, most of us probably aren't terrified of the sun. It's 93 million miles away, which is like Goldilocks distance for us. It's just right. But even that far away, in Texas, in July, we know that it's powerful. These 100-degree days, there's something. And so imagine getting a little closer to the sun, Its power, its radiance, its light, its heat would intensify, not because it was changing, but because you are in closer proximity to it. And at a certain point, the closer you got to the sun, an emotion would set in. This terror would start to creep in because you know what the sun is. And if you get too close, it will melt you. You'll be annihilated. You'll be vaporized like that. And that's the fear Isaiah experiences. Isaiah was fine with God at like a certain distance, but now he's standing in the presence of the holy and he senses the very real danger that he's in. Not because God is is vengeful or attacking, but because God is so good, he's so pure, he's so perfect, it's overwhelming. And you see this all over the Bible. Moses asks to see God's face, and God says, no, you can't. You will die. God comes to meet with his people on this mountain, and the mountain is shaking, and he has them draw this line around it, and he says, do not cross this boundary line, or you will die. God instructs his people on on how to worship him, and he even gives them this physical object the Ark of the Covenant. But he's really clear. He says, do not touch it or you will die. You cannot touch what is holy. Those those aren't just rules that God made up. He's simply stating the truth. I'm holy, you're not, and if you come into direct contact with my holiness, you will be undone. It's like going to space and touching the sun. You'll be dissolved. That is the terror of God's holiness. Now, here's the other way that we try to lessen our fear. We say, well, that was the God of the Old Testament. That was God back then, but not anymore. He softened up, right? We've got Jesus now, so no more fear. It's all hugs. Not so fast. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples, they're in this small boat on a lake, and and there's this awful storm, and the disciples, even the ones who are like seasoned fishermen, they're afraid. And and this whole time, they're waiting for Jesus to do something, but he's sleeping. And and so they run over, and they, they shake him awake, and he gets up. I like to imagine he stretches and yawns. And then he calms the storm with his voice. And the disciples looked at him in terror. They were afraid of, of this storm, and now they're terrified of Jesus. English translations of Mark 4, they make that distinction because it's there in the Bible. The terror of seeing Jesus, just a glimpse of his power, it overshadows their fear of the storm. Sigmund Freud, Bertrand Russell, other atheistic philosophers throughout history, uh, they argue that religion is just this social, psychological construct that humans created to relieve our fear of the natural world. Uh, The idea is that people came up with the idea of God to soothe fear. That is not true of the God of the Bible. No way. Because time and again, over and over in Scripture, when people encounter God, fear isn't removed. It's amplified. Because they realize that there is something, there's someone who is more intense, more powerful, more everything than even their deepest fear. It's like swimming out over deep water and looking down and you can't even see the bottom. And you think to yourself, I don't even know how deep this goes. I, I don't know what's down there. Isaiah sees God and he's terrified. He's terrified of holiness. And then he's disgusted by himself. First, terror and then disgust. When people encounter God, that's the pattern. You can see it at the end of the book of Job. After this lengthy theological discussion about God, Job finally meets God, and Job says, "'My ears had heard of you. Now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes.'" The first emotion in the presence of holiness is fear, and the next response is an acute awareness of personal unholiness. When the unholy meets the holy, our view of ourselves is immediately shattered, and we become extremely conscious of and repulsed by our sinfulness. It's like we live some parts of our lives with the lights off, thinking that You know, maybe we can hide that part of ourselves in the dark. But when we come into the presence of God and in the presence of holiness, the darkness is gone. Everything is is laid bare and and we see ourselves as we truly are. The French author Jean-Paul Sartre lived in Paris during the Nazi occupation in the 1940s. And after the war, he wrote about this emotion, this deep well of a desire for justice, for all of the evil that he had seen inflicted in Europe. And he talks about his feelings at that time and his judgment of all that evil and all of those evil doers. And he imagined himself as if he were looking through a keyhole, watching someone on the other side of a door, seeing everything that they were doing, they're good deeds, but especially they're bad. And he noted the moral superiority he felt, knowing that he could see them and watch them and judge them while they couldn't see him. But then Sartre wrote about this colossal sense of horror and dread that he felt when he realized that there could be another door right behind him and that someone might be on the other side of that door looking through a keyhole watching him and all the things that he had done, the good, the bad, the judgment. And then an even more horrific thought crept in that this other someone might be better than him. They might be more moral, more just. We could even say more holy And he wrote that the feeling this produced was terror because he realized that whoever was on the other side of that door had seen everything about him and he, Sartre, was the one being judged. If I can just go through life and compare myself to other unholy humans, I can always identify the ones who are worse than I am. And and I can convince myself pretty easily, I'm not doing so bad. But when I am confronted by perfect holiness, the walls of delusion, they they come crumbling down. And and this cosmic, like, claustrophobia sets in because we become aware that the holy God of the universe is real and that we are not him. God is holy and woe is me, I'm not. And when your view of God changes, your view of yourself changes. Now, here's why I love this passage so much because of what happens next. We don't end with terror because something else takes place and it's monumental. It forecasts, it foreshadows everything that comes after it in the Bible and human history. Isaiah becomes conscious of himself. His reflex response to God's holiness is, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a man of unclean lips. Why does he say that? Let's just think about this for a moment. Isaiah is a prophet. He's a spokesman for God. So his greatest strength, his greatest gift in life was his his speech, the way that he talked, the messages he delivered. If anything about Isaiah was an instrument of God's holiness, it was his mouth. But he blurts out, I am a man of unclean lips. Even what might be considered good about him, he recognizes, is sinful. In the presence of holiness, Isaiah doesn't repent of sin he repents of his righteousness or what he might consider his righteousness. The very best thing about him, he realizes it's not even worthy of being in the same room as God. It just evaporates. Many chapters later, Isaiah asks, how then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who's unclean. All our righteous acts Are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. Woe is me, I am lost. Even the very best of me. Like like me, my best day as a husband. The the strongest sermon I could ever hope to preach. My finest moment as a father. My highest hope of glorifying God and, and serving him in the world It's nothing. It's filthy. It's unclean. And as soon as Isaiah has this moment of of clarity, his, his eyes open, the moment any of us sees ourselves as we truly are, God steps in, and your view of how he saves you changes. Immediately, immediately after Isaiah sees this truth about God and then about himself, he repents. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So a seraphim flies over with this holy coal. And and notice, even the angel can't touch it. The angel has to use these tongs And it flies over to Isaiah, and it sears his mouth. This blazing coal from the altar, it's burning with God's holiness, and it comes toward Isaiah, and it touches him, but it doesn't kill him. It doesn't incinerate him. It purifies him. The coal, it it symbolizes the Jewish sacrificial system from the tabernacle to the temple the way that a person's sin was, was forgiven was through a substitutionary sacrifice on this altar. An animal would, would be killed and, the, and then burned on the altar so people could be made clean. But that's not what happens here. That's not what happens in God's throne room. Isaiah didn't bring an offering or a sacrifice. Instead, a holy object is brought to Isaiah and it touches him and he is transformed. He's not destroyed by God's holiness. He's purified by it. Not because of Isaiah, not because of anything he's done, not because his lips were pure. Isaiah is purified because holy God came to him and made it so. How can this be? How can the same God who burns with this terrifying holiness, who says, you can't even touch, you can't even look at my face or you'll die. How can that same God also gently touch a human person and make him clean? To really understand it, we have to look at Jesus. And we have to look at Jesus because that's exactly what Isaiah did. Isaiah, more than any other prophet, tells us about Jesus. He leaves this this vision in the very next chapter, Isaiah 7. He says that the Holy One to come will be born of a virgin, and His name will be Emmanuel, God with us, God Himself coming to us, bringing His holiness, not to destroy us, but to make us clean. Isaiah chapter 9 A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 53 tells us that the Holy One will be rejected. He'll be persecuted. He'll bear our shame and our sorrows, and he will pay the price for our sin. Isaiah says, like a lamb led to slaughter. Like a lamb to be sacrificed on the altar to atone for sin. You see, what Isaiah realizes, what he comes to understand is that coal that touched him was from the altar that the Holy One himself would be sacrificed on. Now, Isaiah lived hundreds of years before Jesus, but he writes all about Jesus And the Gospel of John tells us that Isaiah said all these things because he saw his, Jesus' glory, and he spoke of him. That is so cool. 700 years before Jesus is born, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory in this vision. And, And from this point forward, everything about him is transformed. Isaiah leaves this encounter and he begins to talk about how God saves us. The guy who prophesied all about Christ first had to experience God's holiness, and he had to come to understand his unholiness, and then his view of how God saves us changed forever. Have you seen what Isaiah saw? Have you had an encounter with a holy, holy, holy God? Do you see him for who he is? Have you felt what Isaiah felt? Woe is me, I am lost. Do you know yourself as you truly are? And have you ever felt that burning coal touch you? And so do you know it? Do you feel it like in your bones that there's not anything about you but it's everything about Jesus who was sacrificed for you And that's how you're saved and purified and forgiven. As followers of the king, we need this vision of God. We need to see him as he truly is, holy, holy, holy. Because it's not just the most important truth about God, it reveals to us the most significant thing about ourselves and our need for salvation. Theodore Roosevelt was the president of the United States at the turn of the 20th century at a time when streetlights and electricity had yet to make light pollution an issue in America's cities. Whenever Teddy had dignitaries or foreign ambassadors or friends spend the night at 1600 Pennsylvania Ave, after dinner, he had this custom of taking his guests onto the grounds of the White House, and he would tell them to look up. And they would stand there and and look up at the night sky. And Teddy would would point out these different constellations. And he would he would make them look at individual stars. These distant, burning, scorching, intense specks of light that they could only look at because it was dark. Billions upon billions of miles away. And then Teddy would, would just stop talking and they'd stand there in silence just looking up and he'd keep people up way too late just staring into the heavens for so long that many would sit down, some would even lay down, but Teddy would just keep looking up. And after some time, Teddy would softly say to his guests, "Ladies and gentlemen, I think we're all small enough now. Let's go to bed." Grace, let's look up and let's keep looking. Let's look at the Lord on his throne and see the holy king of the universe and let's stare at his holiness until it brings about that transcendent terror and it unravels you. And when you get to that place, don't, don't back away. Stay there. Remain there and keep looking until His holiness burns even your righteousness away. And when you see God as holy, 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 you'll know that you're small enough now. And you'll understand that He's the Holy One who died and came to save you. Would you please pray with me? Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe. Father, we come before you and we have to be humbled, God, because of who you are. God, help us to know you. Help us to to see you as you truly are and see ourselves as we are. And God, to know that you chose to love us and that you choose to love us. God, that you sent your son for us, that we could be brought back and and reconciled and redeemed to be in a relationship with you. God, help us to be people that would live life knowing the king of the universe, trusting you on your throne, that we would be people who would be able to share that truth and share that light with those around us. So, Father, we pray this morning that you would, would guide us and lead us and that you would intervene in our lives and bring light, God, to the areas that we might want to keep dark. Help us to pursue you as you are holy, holy, holy. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.